those words would probably apply to me. Unusual, different, odd, uh, which is why I found my way to animation. <laughs> I found my people in animation. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Mindy Johnson is an award-winning author, historian, educator, and filmmaker. She's a leading expert in women's roles in animation and film history, and her work in the field has garnered her a number of prestigious awards, including the 2020 Asifa Hollywood Animation Educators Forum Faculty Grant and the 2019 Academy Film Scholar Award. But did you know that Mindy is also a Grammy-nominated musician? We recently caught up with Mindy to discuss her varied interests, multiple careers, and how a passion for lifelong learning has made her a leading and essential voice in the study of women's roles in Hollywood history. Here's our conversation with Mindy Johnson. I did some research because I'm like, <laughs> what is there about Mindy on the internet? And the truth is there isn't a lot. There's a lot about your work, but there isn't a lot about you. So I wanted to start by finding out a little bit about you. Like, where did you grow up? You know, what did you like doing as a kid? Uh, tell me about Mindy. Oh, boy, that's an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm originally from a place called White Bear Lake, Minnesota. So I'm from I'm a Minnesota kid, you know, <laughs> and every once in a while that accent slips. Yes. <laughs> um, it is still, I consider it my hometown, and it's my hometown, and it's such a lovely place. There are multiple lakes and yachting, boating, um, kind of outdoors sorts of things, and I grew up uh, as sort of the odd kid out. I was the only girl of uh, four kids, so I have three brothers, and and um, I was the, the real creative right brain <laughs> child. They didn't know quite what to do with. <laughs> um, oh, she paints. Oh, she writes. She oh, she does photography. Oh, she does. You know, she draws. She does everything. Musician. And I actually, my in my other life, my other world, my my secret other realm. Um, I'm a musician, and I uh, played a lot of instruments, a whole range of things, and. Uh, these days, I I still have a harp. I used to be a tuba player. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of all things, my my brothers. This is I blame my brothers. I thank my brothers. Um, we'd had uh, my older brother started on trumpet and then moved to tuba because they needed a tuba player. And I thought that is a really cool instrument, and it was just kind of fun and different and unusual. And uh, so I guess those words would probably apply to me. Unusual, different, <laughs> odd, <laughs> uh, which is why I found my way to animation, right? <laughs> I found my people in animation. Well, I'm curious because I did notice that you you do a lot of things. You're yeah. not you're 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 well known and you're known to me as being like this this wealth of historical knowledge <laughs> on animation. But like you mentioned, you you 
you've been, you're a, a musician, you're a writer, you're an artist. So, you know, clearly you were always a creative mm-hmm. kid. So when, when you decided, when you went to school, what were you, what was the thing that you went to school for? Like, what was, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew oh, up? Oh, well, it was, it was music. I was in band and, and did a lot of, played low brass and quintet and quartet and marching band and the whole thing. And, and music has always been a part of my life. I still write. I'm a songwriter and write musicals and a whole range of things. And every once in a while, if, if the circumstance is right, I might share some of that music with others. But it, I, for a while, I was walking between two worlds. I, The harp world and the music world knew me as one person and couldn't understand that I, what do you mean, film? What do you mean, animation? That doesn't make sense. And um and then the film world, uh, I'd worked in television in New York and and uh, was in a graduate of the American Film Institute and worked in film for a while. And they couldn't understand music. What, what do you, harp? What do you mean? What? <laughs> Guitar? Music? Sing? Songwriter? The what? So I quickly kind of developed two paths in my life. And um, sadly, from I, I had a... A, uh, there was an attempted robbery and I, I had my jaw broken. And so I had a lot of medical work that kind of rendered me, it stalled. I was at the American Film Institute at the time and I, it kind of stalled my career in film and stalled my career in music because I couldn't really do much. So I was playing the harp more so. And I used to play a regular Sunday brunch at a place here in Burbank, kind of a legendary place called the Smokehouse Restaurant. It's been around forever, and it's a bit of an institution. Um, and it and turns out it was quite a animator's place to hang and have lunch or dinner or cocktails or whatever. Um, but I was had a Sunday brunch and uh, played regular Sunday brunch. Dan Haskett would come down and he's like, "Oh, I'm an artist. I'm an animator." And I had been working at Disney. I had I had kind of a J-O-B, <laughs> just to keep the bills paid. I was working in corporate telecommunications, of all things. And I, so I was a little creative fish on corporate dry land, but I needed a, a job to be able to get, I had doctor appointments every three or four times a week. Boy, we're going way off on a tangent here. Um, but it took a while, and I, about four or five years of, of cranial mandibular dysfunctional specialists, malofacial work, speech therapy. So I giggle every once in a while when I I now make a large part of my living through lecturing and speaking. And there was a time I couldn't really. Um, So it's a little unusual. I get a little tongue tied sometimes and occasionally have a get tripped up. Um, But hopefully it isn't noticed too widely or doesn't impede anything that I'm trying to impart. But yeah, I was told I would never sing again. I was told I would never, you know, be able to do any of this. And so a little bit of a roller coaster there early on. So my world is, my life got derailed a little bit. It ended a relationship. It ended my career path. And, but then in some ways sort of turned me onto a a slightly different path, which um, turned into animation. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, did you go to school for music? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I did. I, well, I, my undergrad, I have a double major in music and film and television production. 
Mm-hmm. I got a, got through the music degree and found myself in the movie theaters a lot, like a lot. <laughs> like I was on a first name basis with everyone in the theater and I'd go in and you're like, oh, private screening, no one else in there. A lot. And, <laughs> and I just knew I'd had a photography background. One of my older brothers had set up a dark room in the house and I thought, I just loved it. I'd go in at night. I'm going to go down the dark room, mom. Okay. And I'd be singing away and having a ball and burning paper and film and having a ball with it. And I'd come out to wash my prints and my mother would be coming down the next morning with laundry going, are you still up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just found ways to kind of let that creative spirit out and growing up in the Midwest, there really wasn't too much out there. There was an underground film school kind of where everything was held together with gaffer's tape and, and uh, bailing wire. And uh, so I started taking film classes there and I realized, okay, there's a love here. There's something I have to figure out how we make movies. I want to be a part of that. And I um, tailored my undergrad degree um, it was right at the early days where you could start doing that where you could design your degree and um, it was at a a school in Wisconsin I'll not name names but um, I'll never forget I I went in to pitch this opportunity to create my own major uh, you know and, and I'd finished the music degree but I wanted something in film and it, this this was at the, the early days of computers, and, and it was with the department head who was overdue for retirement and was more interested in keeping my tuition dollars at the campus rather than allowing me to pursue what I really wanted to do. And I'd had a lot of history. I also was had enough to minor in history. And um, he said, oh, what's your name again? After I'd been there for an hour pitching what I wanted to do, and he had, you know, had no clue who I was and he got up and left and I thought watch him go into some crazy room and call up on a computer and get my entire history and sure enough that's what he did which kind of pissed me off and freaked me out at the time and said no no we're not going to grant that you're close to a minor finish it out here and no and I I very uh, politely told him where he could stick his hallowed halls and, <laughs> and marched out of there and uh went to, uh, uh, found a school in the Twin Cities, where I'm from, Minneapolis, St. Paul area, that would let you create your own degree. I had to take a class to determine, you know, to, to essentially learn the concept of a truly educated person never stops learning, right? Important stuff, but I had to take a full class, and that's kind of what you had to come out of it with. Okay. So, um, did that and then ended up designing my degree. And part of that was interning on a television series in New York. So I packed everything up and was off to New York and uh, was there working for a year and was able to look over some incredible shoulders and learn from some of the top people. And then I knew I needed more. Um, I'm of the school that to understand what it is, if you, to learn the language of what you need to convey and communicate, you need to walk. There's a growing up in, in Minnesota, where I'm from, there's a, a tremendous Indian heritage and indigenous heritage. And 
there's a, a proverb and saying in better to better understand another person's journey is to walk a mile in their shoes or moccasins. And so that was important to me. And I knew if I needed to get out what was in my brain, I needed to be able to convey it effectively. So I started looking, um, there was a summer program at NYU and I, I thought I need to know the nuts and bolts of this and, uh, got accepted to NYU, but I had also started to apply everywhere, uh, all sorts of programs, USC, UCLA, and AFI, NYU. And I got the call from AFI that I got accepted, which was the American Film Institute, which is uh, highly competitive. Uh, you know, the tens of thousands of applications they got every year, they only chose 120 of us to get in that year. So when you get in, you go. So I had to literally pack everything up from New York uh, stopped in Minnesota, picked up my harp, <laughs> and drove out to California. And and uh, so here I was, this harpist, and you know, had this strong music background and had worked in network television, but I was at this you know, prestigious film school and had to kind of, again, figure out, how do I fit in? Where do I fit in? Do I belong here? What do I, you know, again, odd girl out. Mm-hmm. So... Um, found my way through. It was a challenging and remarkable and amazing time period, but then had this attempted robbery happen and which stalled quite a bit. So um, I had to, in many ways, I'm kind of just getting on with my career as long as I've been doing this. It's been, I worked in animation production. I found my way uh, at Disney. I'd worked in a very corporate side of things said, okay, I've got to change my life. This, the medical work was done. So I put in my notice and went off to Europe for a month or more and uh, traveled around and cleared my head and then came back with nothing, no idea what to do, where to go. And I got a, a temp job working at Disney Pictures Marketing. And it was only supposed to last a week and it ended up lasting about six years um, we were flying under the radar, but I got to work on, uh, I really learned writing. I worked with some really incredible stellar staff, uh, a number of folks who are still there, um, and just mentored under some great people and established some really great contacts and worked with top talent of the day, filmmakers and, and artisans behind the scenes, as well as the talent did a lot of talent handling and um, a lot of premiere work and and but that's where my writing developed and uh, then that had to end because we were a little sort of left of center as far as my work <laughs> um, I wasn't fully official but I was strong in what I did so they wanted to keep me on and I handled the Miracle on Ice, the movie Miracle that came out about the U.S. 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. Um, they were my, my, my boys. I had got all of them on hand for the premiere. So I had two buses and their families and was the Miracle Mom for about five days through all the press events and material. And then um, I ended up getting a call for the Home Entertainment Division. Um, they needed a publicist there. And so I ended up working there for a number of years um, and handled the classic animated titles. 
And I had worked briefly in animation uh, for when Disney had their direct-to-video series. And, uh, but I learned the production nuts and bolts and ins and outs and loved working with the artists, loved, you know, clearly knew my artistic talents were not at the level they needed to be, but, um, but I could certainly relate and understand from more of a production side on what their work involved and just fell in love with it. And so then the home entertainment opportunity came along and I gravitated right away towards the classic animated titles and got the opportunity, the really just sweet, lovely, golden opportunity to introduce these classics to new generations and to find a new way to tell the story and bring about uh, a spotlight on artists and talent that never really got to see the spotlight in their day and that to me was I think one of the most rewarding things about that experience and and that's where largely where a lot of my expertise came about was working firsthand with many of our legends and artisans and and understanding the process and the history and uh, finding a new way to share it so I did a lot of creative creative content, directed a lot of segments. And, and so my creativity in all the areas that I move in thrived because I could write and create and develop and design and produce and direct and just shape materials that were supportive. And sadly, my name isn't on any of them, but they were a big part of getting these great pieces out there. And uh, that's where the writing came in then. Uh, we were re-premiering Peter Pan in London, and we premiered it at the, we we took over a, a mansion in the Bloomsbury District and dressed it as the Darling Home. And so I, I had, went over ahead of time with digital files and built a walkthrough exhibition. And we dressed, that was the artwork that would be on the walls of the Darling Home. So you had this sort of immersive experience. And we had couple, uh, Catherine Beaumont was there and some of the voice talent from the films. And and then uh, one of the rooms, uh, one of in researching for that and prepping and designing the exhibition, um, I was over at the Animation Research Library at the studio, which I frequented a lot. There are wonderful people there. And where a lot of the artwork is held and stored and preserved. And one of the uh, archivists handed me a binder and said, you know, we're not sure what this is. We think these are Tinkerbells, but we're not sure. Well, there were about 20, 25 drawings of little pixies, but they weren't our Tinkerbell. Come on, you know? I thought, wait a minute, what? <laughs> and the curious part of my brain uh, went to work. Mm -hmm. And so I shaped a part of this exhibition was the evolution of Tinkerbell and was an unearthed sort of this loosely the process that they were going through. And it turns out they'd had the character in development for 15 years or more. And her hairstyle changed and her fashions changed and the tone and tenor of the character changed and her role changed. And it kind of unearthed this whole backstory to one of the most beloved characters in animation. So when we came back from that event, I had photographed quite a bit of it and was sharing it with the teams at the 
Animation Research Library, and I turned to the director at the time and I said, you know, I think there's a book here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that started the Tinkerbell book. And that took a while because, again, it's hard. You know, I kind of just had to learn that, again, what's in your mind and what you're seeing, you have to sort of educate. So along the lines, I had been teaching as well. So all right, I've got to educate about this to, to get this idea sold. Because when you hear Tinkerbell, people think, oh, kid's book, children, charming little girl, children's thing stuff. And no, no, this is an art book. This is a book for everyone. It is a deep dive into. And so it was hard for people to get their head around that because nothing like that had been done. And uh, so that kind of established the tone of everything I've done since. <laughs> I'm curious, when you started working at Disney, you had mentioned that you, the first job there was corporate and it was a J-O-B because yes. you, know, you needed to pay the bills. I'm curious, during that time, those years where you were um, working at Disney and working elsewhere, if there was another place where you were working, were you always also doing something on the side that was creative? Clearly you were playing the harp as something to yeah. sort of yeah, get yeah. out your, to, to, can you talk a little bit about finding that balance between, you know, the job and, you know, keeping your, your artistic like juices going? Yeah. Like It was, it was a lot. I mean, when I come out of this medical work, I mean, that was such a desert of four plus almost five years of doctor appointments and work doctor appointments and work, driving too. And there was a, a wonderful book that had just come out. Uh, Julia Cameron had written it called The Artist's Way. And um, another colleague of mine, you know, here you are in Southern California where there's a lot of creativity going around. It was heartbreaking. It was, it was really challenging. I had to kind of figure out, wait a minute, how do I get back to what I'm doing? And I, I'd written a song kind of born out of that experience. It's called Familiar Waters. And it, it was a gospel number. And here I am, this kid from Minnesota, a white kid, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid from Minnesota. You know, what's this heavy gospel stuff coming out of me, right? I mean, as a creative person, and I'm convinced we all are creative, It's because uh, I did at the time, shortly after I came out of all this medical work, uh, I, I made it a point of, I, I need to kind of get back on track. and. Um, I'd gone to a workshop in Maine, which was a photographic workshop, but it was a it was about rediscovering your artistry. And I thought this will be my sort of my graduation from all of this medical work. I mean, it, it and in many ways the the broken places are part of what become your strongest places. Um, and indeed, that was the case. But I, I was in this hurry to get my career back on track, my creative career. And uh, so the music was the first thing that sort of came to life again. And uh, born out of this experience, I'd written a song called Familiar Waters. Uh, getting back to familiar waters, a truer place found deep inside. Oh, I get emotional now. Something known but long forgotten, once removed, now redefined. We're not supposed to get emotional here. <laughs> but I went back. I had an old boyfriend who was a musician and he was recording. So when I'd go back to visit, I'd called and said, hey, I, I got this gospel stuff coming out of me. Let's do something with it. Okay. So he called some colleagues and 
who were part of a group uh, called the Sounds of Blackness, which was a big 30-voice gospel group out of the Twin Cities uh, that went on and took a number of Grammy Awards and for their recordings. And we did the demo, and I got to sing some backup on it. And uh, one of the singers on the recording then took it in and said, hey, you know, I did the demo on this. And I found out then it got chosen for the next album and the album took a grant or was nominated for a Grammy. So I'm now a Grammy nominated singer. So you never know where this stuff will take you. And um, it was a big part of kind of getting me back into my creativity. I was working my way through uh, the artist's way, which is sort of a great way to kind of peel away the rigidity of, of work and J-O-Bs and everyday people and naysayers and kind of unearth the little creative being in me. And then I, it took a while for me to get my, I thought, well, is it my voice? Is it my harp? What? It, where is it? And I, I met up with another singer-songwriter through some mutual friends who had this really great sound of the time. Um, and there was a bit of a short interest in women singers and performers. Sean Colvin and others were coming out at that time and just breaking through. And so we had a really great sound. Um, and I was the chick harpist. I wanted to take the harp in a weird, different way. I played in orchestras and I hated it. I just hated it. I did what I had to do. There's other great stories there. <laughs> if you really want to go there, we could go there. But, um, but, but I'm grateful I had the experiences. I, I studied over in Europe and and when I came back, uh, there were some local orchestras that were ready to waive the auditions because they knew I'd studied and, and was, at, but it was a good discovery. And I, and I typically tell students today, you know, listen, go down the path, explore it. And if you learn it isn't for you, that's a vital discovery. And so for me, I, I just learned that orchestral playing is is not for me. And so here I was again, this, you know, creative musician, but without a forum, without a stage, without it, where do I channel this? Um, so rock and roll was the place for me. And we had a great sound. We were opening for, uh, we opened for John Densmore, The Doors, and and various other artists in town. And we did a lot of showcases and we were perched really ready to go. And uh, Nancy Wilson from the rock group Heart, Anna Nancy out of Seattle and the Seattle Sound, not too far from you guys. Nancy produced us, and uh, it was just a great sound, and putting the harp, weaving the concert pedal harp into the sound long before Florence and the Machine. I'm so thrilled they took it even further. And sadly, the singer-songwriter I was working with, her health was not the best, and, and unfortunately she passed about a year and a half ago, which is really sad because it was a great sound. You can still find echoes of what we did but it was fun and it was you know suddenly showcasing and traipsing around and doing music videos and and you know kind of leading that vagabond uh, and believe me it was just a drop in the bucket on that life but it was fun and then that uh, led me back to animation but I think it was about finding that balance of finding an outlet whether it was open mic nights or uh, writing a musical or sitting down with a vocal coach and getting your voice back and whatever it took, uh, there was always a need. It was, it was, okay, I got to sustain myself with a J-O-B, 
but my real world is here. And it took a while to be able to get those two to finally, you know, my real world to be my real art. And that's what that song was really about, getting back to those familiar waters. And so in many ways, even though that was decades ago, I'm kind of finally there. Yeah, it seems like one of the things that I noticed from your stories is that the drive to uh, to want to feel uh, fulfilled creatively yeah. and just your passion for learning have kind of always been the, the central driver of where you go in your career and what you're exploring. And in the end, you've come to this place where you're doing exactly what you love, um, which I think is such a, a wonderful story. And it, it's nice to know that, you know, you, you are, you can, you sh- and you should be taking those chances and maybe failing at them to know that that's not for you, like you said. Yeah. Um so for a lot of us, like a lot of people don't ever get to that point, but uh, it's so amazing that you did. And I'm really curious, um, you know, so that first Tinkerbell book was the one that kind of got the ball rolling. But you mentioned that even then you were already doing some teaching. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how that part of your life started? Because now, you know, people know you, you're a great, you're an amazing lecturer and you, you you're lecturing on something that off the top people are like well that's like you say it's for kids like who wants to know more about animation but i mean you're uncovering some like integral pieces of our shared cultural history yes yeah it's game changing and even now even more um and going much wider into the research but yeah it was surprising the teaching kind of came about i'd had my master's from the american film institute but uh because i was behind and was still dealing with medical work I couldn't work you know when you get on a set a film set you can't like oh I got a doctor's appointment I gotta go yeah hold hold my you you finish the shot you couldn't do that and Mm -hmm. uh so I thought well let me take this MFA and see what I can do with it get it out there so I pulled all my records together and started sending out query letters to different campuses in town Mm -hmm. and I was literally uh when I mention this trip to Europe. (laughs) I literally was zipping up my suitcase waiting for my car to pick me up and to take me to the airport. And I I got a call from a department head from a campus, which is about an hour north of LA here, saying, hey, we need someone to teach a a screenwriting class. Can you do it? I went, "Uh, well, when does it start? (laughs) And I said, I'm, I am literally on my way to the airport right now. I'm gone until, okay, well, we'll hold the class for a week if you can do it. I said, great. So while I was traveling then, I had to start processing, how am I going to, you know, what's my, how am I going to do this? So you're, and, and it's funny, we're a little full circle now of late because this whole flip into online teaching, you literally have to build the plane while you're flying it. So you're building the course while you're teaching it and trying to stay ahead of what you're conveying and aggregating your materials and how am I going to present this? And um, and it was, again, the scariest and yet the best of experiences because if you get that feeling in your stomach like, I don't know if I could do this, but I'll say yes. Okay. <laughs> so I did. And um was traveling around here trying to figure out how I was going to teach screenwriting and did. And uh, 
that led to other coursework and other things. And so I've always been teaching, but that's been my side fun. And I keep it that way. If I had to teach full time, I think I'd go out of my mind. Uh, but I, I do enjoy kind of shaking up the classroom a little bit. I enjoy watching those lights come on when you, your students are understanding and learning and get what you're trying to convey. And the fact that I get to sort of turn them on to, so I teach a lot of film and film history and, and, uh, and it's just endlessly fascinating for me because I get to continue to research and discover and enjoy. And I have a lot of autonomy in what I do, which I appreciate. Most of the campuses where I'm at are like, great, go do what you, we know you're doing. We're lucky we have you. Great, great. So I'm, that I'm thrilled about that. And I'm thrilled that it keeps, uh, students keep coming back and, as I'm always joking, you know, you may not get it now, but in 10 years when you're at a cocktail party, you'll, hey, I had this funny class and the teacher was kind of nutty, but I learned a lot and it was great fun. And, and that to me is, is the real joy of, of doing it. And I miss being in the classroom. The online thing is okay. And it's a great means. I don't have to be geographically tethered by any means, but, um, I do miss that immediacy and getting to turn the lights on after they've just watched Casablanca for the first time and watch the, you know, help them to understand even more why it's such a great beast of, of cinematic stuff and why, why it is still timeless and relevant. And, um, you know, and that's the fun of it. And the joy of late has been doing that with animation and, um, doing a lot of festivals and taking on that historic component of it. And I firmly believe too, with the, my other love of history, that when we know where we've come from, we have a better sense of what we're going to do ahead. And uh, so it's been kind of interesting to see that. And at the time when we started your first question about what were you doing as a kid, if someone would have told me I'm, doing what I'm doing today, I would have laughed myself silly and thought there is no way because writing to me was the most arduous thing on the planet. I hated it. Um, but at the same time, I, I probably would have thought, all right, let's see how this unfolds. And there's no way I would have known how this would have unfolded. There's just no way. So I'm always trying to convey to students and to folks whenever I'm speaking is, you know, be prepared to pivot and be prepared to let these things unfold sometimes. Um, you know, coming from the Midwest, and it's a loving thing. Family always wants everything to be logically laid out for you. But be okay with the unknown a little bit. Mm -hmm. Scary, yeah, but to be okay with that and something is coming around the bend or something will take shape and be patient with that. So yeah, it's been interesting. I, I, I don't know that. I, and what's fun now too, is I see a lot of young people, young women and men who are intrigued with this. How do, how do I get started? I want to, I want to do what you do. <laughs> like, Oh, careful, <laughs> careful what you wish for. It's not all that glamorous, <laughs> but it it's wonderful to see that because I, I hope that by what I'm doing is sparking something in others to realize your curiosity can take you to amazing places and to meet amazing people. 
and and follow it. Don't turn it down. Turn it up and listen and see where it takes you. You know, I love. That. I know a lot of people were all in this eager race to have a clear cut path, and I remember thinking um, when I went off to AFI, what I you know I a lot of my family members are in the health field and nurses, doctors. And it's a very clear cut path of what you're going to do. You might specialize somewhere, but you're going to, you know, you're going to go through X number of years of training and then you might find your specialty and start exploring other things. I like the fact that you talk to 10 people in this industry and you get 10 different paths of how they got there. That to me is much more fascinating and much more interesting and makes for a more compelling group of people to be around and to learn about and to share this crazy journey with. And listen, all great things for having a, a steady course. That's wonderful. And there are times I wish I'd maybe been on a more steadier course, but at the same time, it's it helps to keep things, um, you know, the, the possibilities seem a little wider, where you can take this and what you're able to do and, and who you're meeting. And really what that comes down to and, and about community. And it's another great thing about what you guys do through Spark is, is building community and having that place where others who work in a fairly solitary kind of industry as artists um, know and can go to the well that they can go to for sustenance and rejuvenation and, and return back to doing the work. And that's vital. I think community is really key as well. And I think that's why, you know, moving between the worlds of music and the worlds of film and animation, um, it was really about finding that community and the, the familiar waters that, that we all seek out. And you finally will get to a point where you do look back and go, oh, it maybe wasn't quite such a wending path as I thought there was a little rhyme and reason along the way and it does come full circle <laughs> and there's still a lot ahead <laughs> by no means done still a lot no of course well and i'm curious let's i wanted to talk a little bit specifically about the work that you do in the specifically the books yeah. because i don't think that you know, in our minds, we think, oh, yes, a lot of research goes into a book. But I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about what that actually looks like in preparation. So like with the Tinkerbell book, it's clear, you know, you had these these drawings and you had this idea and it was pretty clear exactly what that story was. Oh, no, Tinkerbell, seven years. That was a seven year journey. Oh, Because you had to get to the bottom of, well, why was she going to be a redhead? And why would she have little bells on her bustle? And wh what? <laughs> you know, and then to understand the production process and then take it further to J.M. Barry's work. And uh, that unlocked a whole world of going through his original papers and materials and how the brainchild of this character and where that originated and traveling to London and Connecticut, his papers are at the Beinecke Library in Connecticut. So being able to sit down and go through his papers, you could still smell the tobacco smoke. He'd keep these little notebooks tucked in his breast pocket of his suit with a little pencil and jot down little ideas. It was the turn of the century, so we did not have little digital voice recorders, but that was his way of doing it. Uh, so to be able to go through that and to look through the photographs that he shared with the Llewellyn Davies boys on their pirate adventures and 
but you could look through these notebooks and you could still smell his pipe tobacco on them and unearth the origins of, he called these his fairy notes and he was writing a fairy play. And just to kind of unearth that story. And to me, what I love about what I get to do is un- the journey that unfolds and the places that it takes me, the the libraries and the families and the resource centers and the under people's beds and into their closets. And, you know, the, the people that I get to meet who, you know, are frantically saying, please tell my mother's story or it's really powerful and um, humbling and remarkable. And um, so it does become a journey. And I had to really think, like the Ink and Paint book, the Tinkerbell book, I had no idea it would take me that long. And there were some delays with publishing. And uh, so that was a seven-year journey. But Ink and Paint after Tinkerbell, and for some reason, (laughs) I don't know, maybe it has to do with the size of instruments I choose to play. But I I seem to like epic stories (laughs) a lot. (laughs) And uh, with Ink and Paint, um, after Tinkerbell had come out and my editor said, okay, what's next? And I thought, all right, let me pull together. I had about a dozen ideas. And one of which was I noticed in, in Tinkerbell, that I had about a page and a half of meeting Ginny Mac and Karma Sanderson who were, had worked on Peter Pan and they were still with us. And I, so I have them talking about the specific color and the um, her pixie dust, the solution they worked with the pixie dust that was made from the bile of an oxen and, and all these other little factoids. Um, I thought, well, that's interesting. And I noticed that every other wonderful book out there had nothing on that side of production. So I said, well, maybe let's do something on the campaign department and the women. And my editor, we both thought it was going to be a charming little book. And about the size of the Tinkerbell book. Okay, great. Yeah, that'll be fun. And we'll, you know, get into the, there was a lot of dating and and socializing. And yeah, okay, we'll explore that. Okay, yeah, that'll be fun. And about six months into my research, I had a little bit of a meltdown. (laughs) It was an avalanche. It was trying to get, I still didn't fully have my head around it. And I called her in a panic and I said, this is epic. These women were masters at what they did, but nobody's written about it. And I don't know where it ends because I fu- we fully thought we'd be bringing it up to modern day. And I said, this is massive. And she trying to explain this to her. And she said, okay, keep going. We'll up your trim count and your page size, but keep going. And it was probably the best thing she could have told me and the most frightening thing she could have told me. But the best thing in that, she just let me do my thing. She, all right, just, just, you'll find it. Just do it. Keep going. And then when I finally presented the manuscript, she was like, um, this is really long. (laughs) Well, it is, it's a big story. And she said, all right, I can either put an editor on it or you can edit it. And I said, no, I'll edit it. We did put another editor on. And interestingly enough, it was a woman who the minute we got to anything technical, she just lopped it out going, oh no, and assumed, no, women had nothing to do with that. No, 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 take it out. I'm like, ah, no, they did. That's the story. So I had to sort of re-explain and help guide them up the mountaintop because they said, look, uh, listen, I'm in a very different place than you guys are. Even the, the phrase unconscious bias hadn't even 
been developed or formulated or wasn't part of our vernacular. And I said, look, this is going to be in the zeitgeist, but I need you guys to hang with me. This has to stay as is. It can't be chopped up. And my editor very wisely went, okay. And indeed it has. It has changed things. And um, But it was quite, that was a five-year journey and still ongoing. Because the history doesn't stop, right? And the, the more you uncover, it seems that every time I speak with you, you're on some other, I don't want to say wild goose chase, but it's like you've uncovered some other tidbit of history yeah. and you're going down another rabbit hole, yeah. which I think is amazing because you really are uncovering these almost forgotten histories. Exactly. And that's, I think, the the mystery, the magic, the wonder. The book came out and the amazing folks up at CalArts were I'd gone up to speak there and I said, you know, this is a class. And they were seeing their numbers change where more women were studying animation. And just even in the years that I've been teaching it there, the class itself has changed dramatically because of continual discovery and going beyond Disney into other areas. And then the really lovely uh, honor from the Academy uh, and great encouragement to continue and doing the research globally. Uh, And it is now, again, I've I've had a couple of more (laughs) epic meltdowns of like, oh my God, this is, this is massive. (laughs) But um, once you get a handle on it, I keep thinking, come on now, you've done this. Okay. You get your, you get your handle on it. And it really is incredible. The stories, the, the backstories, what these women were doing before their time in animation, after their, during, after just who they were as human beings. I mean, we certainly have compelling people on our male side of, of the historical experience, but they were pretty much just animation. But we have women who accomplished so much more, far beyond their time in animation, um, just artists, record-breaking pilots, master chemists, um, social changers, game changers, changers in entertainment and in other fields. And that's what's equally as fascinating about it is getting to meet these people. Sadly, many of them have passed, but finding the families, getting to their stories and uh, unearthing who they were, but certainly in their time in animation, but beyond that. And they're incredible, remarkable people. I, I think that's been my greatest joy is, is uh, the wonderful people like yourselves and the places this has taken me to that you get to meet and share this with and, and uh, enlighten them with and open up a world for them. And let's get it out there because I want to get people aware and to change the, the tenor of, of attitudes out there so that we get to a more balanced representative plane of creativity. I mean, I was held back so many times and still even today, you know, where I get um, pigeonholed, I guess is maybe an outdated term for it, but not seen for the full range of who I am and what I can do and have done and what I bring to the table. People see me as an author and historian, so it's very sweet and kind and very awkward for me to talk about everything I do because it's a lot. But I want to see those opportunities opening up for the next generations where an odd girl like me would not be held back for all that she does because people can't get their heads around it. 
and I don't have to move in separate realms because people can't get past. They only want to see you as one thing. So yeah, maybe I need to add a little more diversity about myself and what I do as a bit of a lesson, but um, we'll get there in time. Well, I think I think one of the amazing things, and this leads beautifully into what I want to talk to you about next, and that's uh, pencils, pens, and brushes, yeah. which I think it's such an amazing extension of the work that you did with Ink and Paint, and this thought to share this knowledge and these stories with children in a very palpable and educational way. Um, can you talk a little bit about where that project got its start and where that idea came from? Because I think it's genius <laughs> and it ties beautifully into the work that you do and, and into your, your goal of sharing these stories more universally. Thank you. That's such a sweet treasure. Um, well, if you've seen Ink and Paint, you know it's a <laughs> bit of a commitment. <laughs> it's a good upper body workout. It's a tiny tome, uh, about 1,200 tiny tomes. Um, it's it's a big book. And I got to seeing, you know, when I first started doing signings and events after that came out, I would see these little ones juggling this massive book going, and moms bringing their little ones to, my kid draws, that's all she does. And I'm like, that's great. And I thought, and believe it or not, Ink and Paint is still just scratching the surface on these incredible women and their backstories. And so I only had so much real estate in that book, as brimming as it is, there was only so much I could put in there. And so many of these women had incredible stories beyond accomplishments or experiences far beyond their time at Disney and or before or during or after. And so I, I, you know, after seeing these little ones struggling with this, and I'm like, in a few years, this is going to mean a lot to you. But right now, maybe just look at the pictures. I don't know. And I thought, we got to do something here, because I wish I'd had a book like that as a little girl, to know that I'm not the only one who does a lot of things, and I'm there's a place for me. So I pitched the idea, and I had one, I had a short, short list, but Lorelei Beauvais was at the top to, to illustrate. And it took a little bit to kind of convey, we had to take it to a different division of publishing and they embraced it. Um, sadly, COVID hit, so I haven't been able to be out and promote it, but I think it will find its audience eventually. And it is exactly that, you nailed it. It's an extension of ink and paint. It's, it's uh, stories beyond that, that we just couldn't fit in the book. And again, it is still only scratching the surface and it's a treasure. And I was originally going to do it in verse. I'd started writing it in verse and getting my songwriting chops up there again. And, and suddenly we got the green light and the deadline was much faster than I thought. So I said, all right, <laughs> I proposed my notion of, you know, putting in these little inspirational verses because rhyme and meter have a way of sticking with us a little more. And I wanted it to be inspirational for little ones, all ages, really. So again, my editors were, were amenable to that. They were like, okay, okay, that sounds great. We'll try. And, and from layout and everything, suddenly I thought these would be little taglines. No, no, they're featured and they're 
artistically done. And people have bought extra copies of the book and cut out pages and hung them on their wall and framed them. And it inspires me every, okay, great. So it's been wonderful again to sort of see where it goes out into the world and, and the magic, what it's doing. And it's an easier dip into the waters of this really epic story and something to appeal to. And I wanted to do a, you know, best boys getting kind of for young boys to learn about our early male animators uh, and girls. But again, we'll see what, what unfolds. So what's next? Like that you always have like 500 things happening. Yeah, at once. I do. So what are you working on now? Well, um, uh, the really incredible Academy Award was uh, kind of game-changing and a big part of what I'm focused on now, which is uh, researching way beyond, as I said, globally in terms of where women were and have already unearthed game-changing discoveries uh, will completely change what we thought we knew once again. So until that's about ready, I was supposed to be researching uh, last year, but now... Hopefully soon I can get on with more of that. Um, there are some existing collections that are history is recorded, preserved, written about, and archived from a male perspective. So it sort of takes a little extra digging. And when you do find something, it's not going to be as perhaps voluminous as it certainly would be on men. But there are threads that can be pulled that will unlock and get answers. And so I need to be doing more of that. And hopefully traveling now is not going to be, will open up and I could get back on track with that. But ultimately that will turn into possibly a series of books uh, because there's such a rich wealth of new discoveries unfolding. So um, we'll just sort of have to see. I, I wanna create good, hearty, substantive bio content and, and recorded material content so that you have a place to go to. That was the big lesson that Ink and Paint revealed was that we didn't have a place to go to any of this. The wonderful volume of books out there written by my male colleagues are wonderful, but they really only give you half the story. And you see the same four or five women's names listed in there. But we now know there's the other half of, to the sky that women were holding up. So it's getting to the bottom of that. And I think based on the volume of this, it may be a series of books. There's some other media efforts that are underway that uh, we'll see how that unfolds. Um, I'm getting a database built on content and material. And I want to be out speaking and lecturing as much as I can and, and uh, just changing the world. I love it. Uh I, I was going to end there, but you touched on something that I think is really interesting, and that is about how history is written from primarily a male perspective. Do you find that that's changing now? Is there more of a push? And I mean, I, I expect you're not the only woman doing research about women in history. So is that, do you see a change or are we finally kind of moving forward in the right direction? <laughs> We're starting to move forward, uh, although there are some... <laughs> Efforts that probably should not have been done. <laughs> uh, you get people who are trying to jump on the bandwagon and being a little superficial about their research. Unfortunately, there are a couple of volumes that are not accurate 
and very problematic. And so they, and they're also in that superficiality of their research, they're kind of cherry picking through my work and others. And then there's a lot of room for inaccuracy, which then only pollutes and adds more problems. Um, and we've also had, uh, you know, people are jumping on the narrative nonfiction bandwagon and <laughs> making stuff up, which is only perpetuating myths and falsehoods that trying to correct, really. So um, I would say where it is wonderful, and I'm trying to be as supportive as I can, I get asked to read and review a lot of things. And I I will put my name on things that are worthwhile, but if you're not seeing my name on them, you might want to think about it uh, or not waste your money. Um, and it, it's it's important that we get these stories out there, but it's important we get them out there correctly. And, it, and history is ever evolving. It, certainly it is. And there is a, a large level of subjectivity to it. But it's important as you're doing this kind of work, particularly for getting the groundbreaking work out there, you've got to be as objective as possible. And so that's my goal here is to get sort of the definitive go-to volume that at least will new discoveries will continue and more families will come forward more people will come forward that's been the case with ink and paint so i've got wonderful new discoveries that sadly we couldn't get them in there or they're unidentified in the book that's why i try to get as many images or group shots so at least there will be an image somewhere of someone at some point um and why I'm building the database so that we can go back and, and perhaps ID more people. It's endlessly infuriating when you, you open a book and there's a group shot of the Fleischer Studios in the 1930s, and all the men are ID'd, but the large number of women are not. So trying to get that an answered, trying to find those records is near impossible, but every little thread leads to something new and different. And I get a lot of wonderful people who are sending stuff to me. Hey, hey, somebody just died. Well, okay, she may have worked in briefly, but you know, we'll see if the family can has cast further light on it. Great. So chasing down a lot of that. Um, I think I get a lot of students who are always asking, how do I get started in doing what you do? Well, find a subject, find an area, find a, uh, start with one person and try to unearth what you can. And there are challenges to that. And, and when it opens up, it's exciting and wonderful, but it's not glamorous. <laughs> and you do a lot of digging and it's sitting in a lot of archives and libraries at odd hours and late nights at the computer. And, and, um, and you get a lot of people who don't want to do the work too. So um, that's all well and fine, but I, I just I encourage people to vet their sources and who they're who they're dealing with and what they're reading and taking in. And uh, but keep it up, keep it going, keep it out there. I, I highly recommend um, Mallory O'Meara's book, The Lady from the Black Lagoon. She did some great research into the life of. She was Mildred Rossi while at the Disney Studios, uh, then changed her name to Mal uh, Millicent Patrick and had a really incredible circuitous life that sadly she never got the credit that was due her. 
And so uh, it's been a real delight to work with Mallory and get her story, Mildred Millicent's story, properly recorded and back into history, Hollywood history, as it should have been all along. So, yeah, there's a lot of fun in, in kind of correcting falsehoods and myths and untruths, but you get a lot of people who are jumping on the bandwagon here and uh, aren't as versed. I mean, I've been doing this for many years now, and there's still a lot to be learning about the industry and about Hollywood and and our past and women's history and, and how things progressed and moved. And, and uh, it's, it's important that it's handled by people who have a sense of that. And, um, you know, people could be talented writers, but if they don't know what they're writing on or researching about, it's kind of an exercise in futility, really. So, um, Stay tuned. There will be some there are some other good things that are coming out. You also get sort of trapped in that world of academia where people are theorizing about, oh, the color the women were using exemplifies their frustrations and not being. No, it's it's theory. It's it's academia, which is why I keep one foot in reality and one foot in academia. I'd go out of my mind if I had to live in academia. Love, you know, not putting anyone down here, but I'm just saying that particularly at this point, we've got to get to the kernels of truth and we've got to get these stories out as accurately as we can before we start theorizing about them. <laughs> so um, that's kind of where I see uh, what's next and, and what's ahead and trying to get to as many primary sources as I can and to cross-reference and validate and cross-check. And you know, they're gonna be, the percentage on hitting it 100% of the time is pretty high, but um, it's important to at least get it out there. So we have a wider look and a wider place of resource to get to, to understand this. And then someone else can pick up the torch and continue doing it. The SparkCast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.